and welcome to Worst Bestsellers, where sometimes we actually read good stuff. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. Welcome to the second part of our annual end of the year book review. Um, Today we'll be talking about our favorite adult books and comics and graphic novels that we read this year. Two weeks ago, we talked about our favorite children's and young adult books, so make sure to listen to that if you missed it. So as as is the case with our last part, this is um, our top five favorite and one least favorite books that we read this year outside of stuff for the podcast. So of course, the intentionally bad, not intentionally bad, the books that we intentionally pick for our bad book podcast are going to be the worst stuff that we read this year. And so some of the things that we call worse might not actually be that bad. They're just like our least favorite things that we didn't read for the podcast. And if you've listened to this podcast before and you've listened to our our year wrap-ups before, you may notice there's a slight difference this year. Uh, usually we do a dramatic reading from what our quote-unquote worst book of the year is. And we've actually eliminated that this year because I don't read books for my job so I don't read books that are bad usually I stop reading them and then it just becomes like oh well here's the book that I liked but didn't like it as much as all the other books that I read and it's hard to find like that kind of ridiculous prose that makes dramatic reading so funny you're just reading from a book that's fine um so we're not doing that this year Although, uh, as Renata, I, I will say that the the worst adult book that I read this year was pretty bad. So, mine too. Um, and lastly, uh, these are books that that we happen to read in the year twenty seventeen. It's not necessarily stuff that came out this year. Sometimes we go back and read older stuff, and sometimes it's still good. Um, so all that said, um, let's dive in and start talking about these mostly good books. Um, (laughs) my fifth favorite adult book that I read this year was, uh, Rich People Problems by Kevin Kwan. And this is the third book in the trilogy, I guess, that started with, um, Crazy Rich Asians, which I read the whole trilogy this year. I really enjoyed all three of them. Um, if you listen to our last episode, I mentioned that I had read all of the Gossip Girl books this year and enjoyed them. And this really just felt like kind of a slightly um, slightly better written uh, Gossip Girl for adults, but just set in the world of uh, mostly Singapore, but of these like very wealthy Asian families and um, just kind of their ins and outs. It's like very gossipy. It's very funny in tone. It's very... Um, you know, there's some romance, there's some family drama. It's very fast paced, like things are just happening. Um, they're really enjoyable. And then also there is kind of some armchair travel, armchair uh, restaurant visiting, I guess, because um, as is also the case in Gossip Girl, things like dresses and food and fancy estates get described just in loving detail. And it was just like a, a really enjoyable read. All three of them, but the most recent one was Rich People Problems by Kevin Kwan. So my number five book for adults that I read this year was Mablecroft by Sherry Priest. Um, I actually have tried to read this book before. Um, I tried to read it with words a couple years ago when I was struggling with that divide between reading and listening to audiobooks. Uh, And it was good, but I didn't actually like power through it. 
So I listened to it on audio this year, and I really liked it. Um, we talked a little bit about this when we did our Lizzie Borden episode, because Maplecroft is a uh, sort of Lovecraftian retelling of the Lizzie Borden story. It takes place after the murder, the hatchet murder, and several years after they've moved into their new house, Maplecroft, and uh, that, that would be Lizzie and Emma. And we learn that the reason that Lizzie killed their parents was because they had become infected by this thing that was making them into a sort of kind of like ocean zombie jellyfish type monster. And in the years since, Lizzie has been protecting the town from these by patrolling and um, killing them when she finds them. And uh, much like old timey, um, folklore about fairies they are averse to iron so a lot of their house is covered uh, is like lined with iron nails and she uses the axe to kill them and has set up this entire like elaborate scientific uh, laboratory in the basement to get rid of them when she does kill them and the story is told in sort of an epistolary format um, mixing different people's journals and points of view and, you know, is essentially about the, the breakdown of this system that she has set up to protect the town as uh, the creatures start to try to get the best of her. And it was very engaging. It was creepy at points. Uh, it was pretty well paced. It got it went a little off the rails at the end, but strangely not as off the rails as the, you know, supposedly uh, realistic Lizzie Borden novel that we read for the podcast somehow. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was interesting. I listened to it and uh, the nar narrator was pretty good and I would recommend it. All right. Um, my fourth favorite adult book that I read this year was We Are Never Meeting in Real Life by Samantha Irby, which is an essay collection. Uh, I guess I wasn't familiar with Samantha Irby before on the back. It was like, oh, her blog is so popular. Um, her blog is called Bitches Gotta Eat. I hadn't read it before, but I really enjoyed the essays. Um, she's very funny. They're just, um, uh, it's, it's sort of almost a memoir in essay form. It goes through her kind of, um, some of her childhood, some of it is, fairly intense discussions of like s abuse and mental illness but it's it's mostly um funny and it's um it ends with her i think basically in like a good place in her life um getting married to a woman who uh i forget she calls her she calls her like a, a funny name that i forgot now uh, anyway it's it's a funny um interesting essay collection um the cover has a really adorable kitten on it and i just will warn you because some sensitive readers such as myself get very upset when animals die in books and i will warn you that that cat does die but it had a really good life um so that's we're never meeting in real life by samantha irby all right um my fourth favorite book for adults this year was The Good House by Tanana Reeve Du, which I think I talked about as a recommendation at some point um, this year. But it is a really interesting novel um, and very creepy. And it does, like, cool things with time and magic. So essentially, at the start of the book, 
well, there's a couple prologues, but once the, the actual meat of the book starts, uh, we're following Angela Toussaint, who she grew up in the Pacific Northwest-ish. Uh, her grandmother owned this house that was called the Good House in the town uh, where her grandmother lived and was kind of like a, a matriarch of the town. And she spent her summers there as a teenager and inherited the house after her grandmother died. And at the start of the book, three years prior, at a 4th of July party, her son shot himself at, in the middle of the party uh, in the basement. And her life has pretty much fallen apart since then. Like, she's become very successful in, like, her second chosen career. But her marriage, which had already sort of fallen apart, was, like, finally dead. Um, she's kind of cut herself off from all of her remaining family and friends and uh, she essentially has had other people looking at the house. She hasn't been back since it happened. And she's contacted by the caretakers who have uh, buyers for the house in mind. And they want her to come back and uh, decide whether or not she's going to sell the house or uh, keep it. And all of the memories of her youth, but also the memories of uh, her son's death. And uh, her grandmother was from initially from New Orleans and moved out to this town in Washington state uh, after she had messed around a little bit with the, the magic in her family too much and kind of put herself in a bad place. Um, she got a little too cocky and the um, kind of like the, the patrons of the magic that she was using kind of wanted to, to throw it back at her a little bit. So she came out here and, um, it's it's hard to explain without giving away a lot of parts of the plot, but it is a really interesting story about magic and race and uh, doing the wrong thing for the right reason and defending yourself and uh, making choices for your family and the repercussions of those choices later on. It is very creepy. There are parts that are very eerie and weird, um, and it the timelines kind of jump back and forth, which occasionally would get a little confusing because I would, like, stop in the middle of a section and then pick it up and forget, like, what timeline I was in. But it was really good. It was really interesting. The story is really richly woven together. The world building is incredibly good, and... All of the characters are are very uh, well-defined and have very strong voices. And it was a very long book, but it did not feel like a very long book because it was so engaging. So pick that up. My third favorite adult book that I read this year was The Summer That Melted Everything by Tiffany McDaniel. I, I don't know exactly what to tell you and I almost don't want to tell anyone too much because when I picked this up I didn't know very much about what it was going to be about and I just picked it up because a friend of mine recommended it so strongly and I, I value her opinions so I picked it up and it's it's set in 1984 in the summer obviously in a small town in Ohio and our narrator is a, a young boy named Fielding, and his father has just written, like, an open letter to the newspaper to publicly invite the devil to come to town. And and then a 13—and they're a white family, and a 13-year-old black boy just sort of appears in town, 
And he says he's the devil. And he says he's coming to, like, answer this letter. And it's, he just seems like sort of a regular, like, maybe homeless boy. And so Fielding's family takes him in. And he, you know, he mostly seems like a, a nice, sweet, homeless boy. But things keep happening in the town. And the temperature keeps increasing. It's an extremely hot summer. So uh, Sal is the boy, the name the boy goes by, who says he's the devil. Um, so the, the temperature just keeps getting hotter. Tensions increase. Um, you see how this, the, the doubt about whether or not Sal's the devil, the heat, the other things that keep happening. You see how these are starting to play out on the townspeople. Um, we also see Fielding's beloved older brother, Grand, um, we see what's happening with him. Grand is gay. This is sort of peak HIV AIDS crisis time. So that is also part of what's happening in the book. It's magical realism, but it's also this very tender family story. It's it's just gorgeous. I couldn't put it down. Um, check out The Summer That Melted Everything by Tiffany McDaniel. All right. I will maybe have to do that. It sounds kind of up my alley. So my number three book um, in adult book for adults that I read this year uh, was Dracula by Bram Stoker. You may have heard of him. Uh, I think Renata and I talked about this before, but we... Yeah, we had a whole run of vampire books. Yes. Yes, we read read, um, the... Suki Stackhouse book and then Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and Breaking Dawn and during that uh, Renata and I are in a book club and the first book that we read was Dracula and it was during that same time period so it was very vampire centric around here for a little while and I had never read Dracula before and I had certain ideas about it based on popular culture and ended up listening to it and loving it it was so different than I thought Everything about it was way different than any pop cultural uh, interpretation that I've ever seen before. And I just, like, really liked it a lot. And the more I thought about it and the more I continue to think about it, the more I like it. Uh, It's an epistolary novel. And the majority of it is actually not necessarily, like, people fighting with vampires or Dracula, like, holding people hostage. But people working together using cross-referencing and friendship to, like, defeat evil. Mina Harker, love of my life. Uh, every Everything about it was way different than I expected, and I ended up really loving it and loving the characters and the type of story that it was telling. And I would, like, recommend that you read it if you haven't already. And if you think you know everything you need to know about it from pop culture, you're definitely wrong. Found family in Dracula. Who knew, right? Not me, until I read it, and it was good. So read it if you haven't, because I think you'll be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. Um, It... Pop culture, I feel like, is definitely not fixated on the most interesting parts of the Dracula story, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of pop culture, I guess, um, I really liked the movie Hidden Figures that came out last year about the the black women who worked at NASA who, um, you know, worked to 
to crunch the numbers before we had actual devices of computers, and then also when we did have the devices of computers. Um, so I like the movie, and of course, uh, I've, the book also is good. The book really does a lot more to contextualize how long they'd been working at NASA, um, how like a whole segregated town basically came up to support the black people who worked at NASA and how how many repercussions this whole um their whole program the whole town everything has had and continues to have um but it is still at its core that very engaging story that made hidden figures the movie so good so if you like the movie i definitely would recommend the book it's written by margot lee shutterly and it just is the movie but with even more context and more history about how heroic um those women are and and other women who weren't in the movie and some men too i guess (laughs) My number two book that I read this year for adults, I talked about extensively on social media, uh, and that is Ghostland by Colin Dickey. This book was essentially written for me. Um, It is sort of like the history of America as told through uh, different ghost stories and folklore from across the country. It was fascinating to me. It was very, like... I wouldn't necessarily say I'm an armchair historian because I just don't have the wherewithal to get through a lot of history books, but paranormal history is definitely my jam and hearing kind of the historical background for a lot of well-known paranormal activity in America and different types of ghost stories that come about in America and how they are connected to various points in American culture and how they reflect a lot of things going on in American culture. It was just really fascinating and really well done. I listened to the audiobook and I actually bought the Kindle version when I, I was driving from, from New Jersey to Boston back from a, a trip to visit my parents. And I can't remember why I was by myself because normally I'm with other people when I'm doing that drive. And I just listened to this. And as soon as I got back, I bought the Kindle version and started going through and like notating parts of it that I thought were really interesting and that I wanted to remember. Uh, Even if you don't like ghosts, it's not like a horror novel. It's not scary. But if you do like ghost stories and, and the different types of ghost stories that you hear of a lot in America, things like um, the hitchhiking ghosts, definitely pick it up. Um, I think you're really going to like where it goes with a lot of the stuff that's in it. It was really good. It was also uh, very surprisingly, I mean, not, not that I, I was went in expecting it to be like racist or misogynistic or anything, but it was um, very focused on being, kind of pulling apart the misogyny and racism in our culture and how that contributed to ghost stories. And uh, there's also a really interesting positive chapter on uh, sex workers, which when, when it started, I was kind of like, uh, but you know, which was done really respectfully as well. So it was a lot more, I guess, progressive than I thought it was going to be when I picked it up. Yeah, that's definitely one. I remember you talking about before. It does sound very up my alley and I do want to get around to reading it eventually. Uh, but I didn't do that this year. 
<laughs> and uh, instead, my favorite adult book that I read this year is another essay collection. This one is called Too Much and Not the Mood by Durga Chubos, who um, writes some stuff for BuzzFeed. You probably have seen her writing online. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's a personal essay collection, which is kind of one of my favorite things to read, as you can probably tell from these podcasts, is it's just... It's a it's an essay collection about so it's it's a, some about her uh, childhood and she is um, Indian Canadian her parents are from India but she grew up in Canada and then uh, later moved to New York and so there's a lot of just different observations about different parts of her cultural identity and like what's happening in New York but then also a lot of um, stuff about like how the internet is weird and. Whatever, and she just has a very, like, beautiful, poetic style of writing, and I'm going to read from you just a little bit of the very first essay, because it immediately, it so immediately hooked me when I picked it up and I started reading this, and so if what I'm about to read you sounds good, like, just, just follow through, the whole collection is great. And so this is from the first essay in the book, which the essay is entitled Heart Museum. There's an emoji on my phone that I've never used of a shell pink tower block building with blue windows. Smaller than an apple seed, crumb sized, if that, it stands six stories high. Six windows going up, three square, three rectangular. I counted them and double checked because extra small things bring out the extra small person in me who sometimes even triple checks things, who still chances certainty might exist in asking, Promise me? This emoji is further detailed with a letter H, pink too, but more or less magenta, that hangs on its front and is matched in size by a pink heart floating above the building's extension, like a shiny mylar balloon escaping into the sky. The building's roof is maroon, and an awning, also pink, shelters its two-door entranceway. Unlike the house emoji, for instance, this one has zero greenery, no shrubs, no tree, no landscaping, just a standalone building that, until recently, I thought stood for cardiologist. The H and its accompanying heart were an expression of, in my mind, heart hospital, or heart doctor. And not, as I later discovered while scrolling through an emoji glossary online, love hotel. I was sure the building stood for all matters having to do with that four-chambered, fist-shaped muscle we carry that carries us with constancy, that beats, did you know, more than 100,000 times a day. Imagine that, even when we're pressing snooze and rolling over in bed, folding ourselves into our covers and postponing the days bubbling over, and soon after notching cold butter and warm toast, or later coming to a halt as we bound up a flight of subway stairs only to stall behind an elderly woman whose left leg trails behind her right leg, one leaden step at a time. Even then, when time decelerates and the relative importance of our lives, of our hurry, undergoes a sudden, essential audit, even then, our heart never stops. Even when a name I've long ignored, blotted from my mind in order to safeguard some good sense, pops up bold in my inbox, even when I noticed three consecutive missed calls from my father, as if metronomed by doom, fear the worst, my heart does not stop beating. 
Even when I hear a sound or count footsteps following me at night or spot two rats darting from a pile of trash or hold my breath as Lisa Fremont climbs the fire escape to Thorwell's apartment while Jeff anxiously sits guard in his wheelchair, watching with his binoculars from across the courtyard. Even then, even Hitchcock, despite pure movie fright, how it skewers me, my heart doesn't stop. Even when the cab all of a sudden breaks and jerks forward. When anything lurches, careens, when think fast trails the toss, when my leg involuntarily twitches and I sense I've lost my balance, only to wake up having dozed off. Even when I watch Man on Wire, bewildered as to why anyone would perform such a stunt. Eight passes back and forth, a quarter mile up. Even when a thought springs fresh in my mind on the subway and solves an essay I'd just about abandoned, on the rare occasion my subconscious welds, language has a gift, I've learned, for humi humiliating those luminous random acts of creative flash into impossible-to-secure hobbling duds. The best ideas outrun me. That's why I write. So that is just a little bit from Too Much and Not the Mood, um, the title which comes from Virginia Woolf, because it's a very classy book, um, by Durga Chubos which I, I recommend really highly. I really took my time reading it because she writes in this style that I just like to savor every word and every phrase. S super good. Okay. Um, it sounds really good. I'm going to put that one on my list, I think. Hell yeah. Uh, which is high praise because it takes me freaking forever to like find adult books that I want to read and then read them. Uh, speaking of which... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, when I started putting together this list, I did not think I would have read enough books intended for adults to, uh, fill a top five and number one worst. So Renata made a suggestion and I jumped on it, uh, that perhaps my favorite book that I read for adults this year was Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 by Dave Malloy. Uh, it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I've talked about Comet a lot on this podcast. I've been talking about it for years since I first saw it. Uh, and it is incre an incredibly important piece of art to me. Uh, and kind of just barreled through when I wasn't expecting it. Um, when I went to see the show for the first time, I didn't know what it was, aside from the fact that I had heard good things about it. And, uh, you know, it was playing at the ART, who I trust to do weird, cool things. And it just, from the first night that I saw it, I couldn't decide immediately whether I liked it or not, but I knew that it was amazing. And I could not stop listening to it or thinking about it in the days that followed and I still have not really stopped listening to it or thinking about it it is a fascinating experiment in theater in taking a novel and turning it into a, a piece of musical theater and having it still get across uh, parts of the narrative and the structure that you would think would only be inherent to a novel and um, Dave finds a way to put it on stage where it's still clear that this is its origin, that a, a novel was its origin and not just a novel, but like the novel, you know, the most classic of classic literature, uh, as decided by a lot of crusty old white men. And he turned it into something weird and cool and accessible and diverse. This thing that uh, is usually just talked about as 
something that you have to like because it's in the canon and many old white men before you have decided that it's good and Dave pulls it apart and shows us why it is good uh, by presenting it through this lens of today while also evoking the actual time period that the, the piece takes place in by using this incredibly diverse cast and incredibly diverse types of music and it's just it's beautiful and wonderful and i don't want to talk about how it ended because it didn't deserve that and i'm still mad about it and i'll always be mad about it forever for the rest of my life i will be angry at how the world turned on this show that did not deserve it for reasons that were not even really true and tore it down when it should have been running for a really long time uh but I did also technically read Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 this year uh, because they put together a book about the journey of the show from Broadway to or from uh, off off Broadway where it started at Ars Nova uh, to Broadway itself. And um, in addition to the libretto uh, annotated by Dave, which uh, his annotations are amazing and they're almost all on genius.com if you want to go and read them. Uh, and it was also uh, had a whole bunch of essays by different members of the creative team and the cast. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, Dave's essay about the show's journey. I also knew that I wanted to embrace both the old and the new to be both sincere and reverent, yet knowing and sharp, communing with, but also commenting on the classic ism of the novel without ever lapsing into irony or parody. One of my favorite things about reading classics is finding those moments that feel startlingly contemporary, that remind you that human emotions have been the same for centuries. It's that connection that makes these stories timeless and cathartic. But there is also such rich opportunity for humor and illu illumination through anachronism, colliding time periods to both highlight the similarities and revel in the bizarre and subtle differences between the then and the now. Finding that delicate balance of tone was a critical step in making the piece come to life. The music helped with this a lot. Setting this archaic-sounding prose to music that combines everything from Russian classical to post-Detroit techno helped create a new cross-century space where our characters could breathe fully, both as 19th-century Russians and 21st-century New Yorkers. In October 2010, I took a trip to Russia, and one magic and foggy and perfect night, my friend Anna and I found our way to a little place in Moscow called Cafe Margarita. We had to wait in the doorway until there was room for us at one of the many small wooden tables, each packed with Russian dumplings and vodka, and these bizarre handmade musical shakers, which everyone was shaking along to the incredible trio, piano, violin, and viola, as they played classical pop's hits like Flight of the Bumblebee. Uh, when we finally got a seat, I ended up inches from the viola player, hearing her counterpoint in my ear, watching all the laughing, joyous, joyous faces as people drank and shook and ate and laughed and shook and drank some more. I realized that this is where Comet needed to be set. Not at a stuffy, aristocratic dinner club, but at a raucous, uh, democratic tavern with everyone playing along. We needed shakers on the tables. Um, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Uh, we started rehearsing in August, and as we took over Ars Nova, I still remember the first time I saw Mimi's gorgeous curved runways snaking through the theater, completely transforming Ars Nova's architecture. I worked furiously on the orchestrations while also music directing and learning how to quote-unquote act. While Rachel played with our glorious cast and created a family, 
Tolstoy's celebration of the full spectrum of humanity, from Pierre's spiritual search and Natasha and Anatole's melodrama, to the Bokonsky's domestic nightmare, Balaga's supernatural exuberance, and all the rest, paints a profound picture of what it is to be human, with every outlook complementing and influencing the others, both directly and metaphorically. In the same way Rachel let every actor be their most full self and put their own distinct stamp on the show, creating such a singular culture, such a beautiful and sublime interconnected constellation of stars that I was and still am in awe. And from there to Casino, then to ART, then to Broadway, every step of the journey described in the following pages has felt so surreal and impossible. These heavenly bodies have continued to twist and shape into new and more glorious manifestations, every time building off what came before, but transcending into something more grand and rich. How did this happen? Tolstoy wrote some words. I wrote some words and music. But the vague and fuzzy vision I had in my head of what the show would be was such a poor and pitiful glimmer compared to the bursting, soaring fireball it became. Once all those dozens and now hundreds of mag Magnificent people, performers and designers, stage managers and prop masters, carpenters and electricians and sound techs and seamstresses and everyone else got their hands on it. I get so humbled thinking about all the people who have built this show. It's not Tolstoy. It's not me. It's not Rachel. It's everyone. Pierre sees the comment about halfway through War and Peace. It's not an ending. It's another beginning. His heart continues to blossom and grow, and his life transforms again and again into wilder, wilder and more terrible and more beautiful and more profound things than he ever dared to imagine. And the Comet family is still blossoming and growing, too. These incredible artists, some of my best friends in the world, continue to astonish and amaze me, to stop me in my tracks with their blinding and dazzling brilliance and light. To all of them, from the bottom of my soul, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a really good show, guys. But now let's talk about some stuff that's not good. Yes. Uh, okay, let's do that. <laughs> Take a moment. Uh, my least favorite book that I read for adults this year was called Flash of Fury by Leah Griffith. Um, this is like a thriller romance, um, or I guess romantic suspense perhaps is the genre. It's not something I would have picked up normally, except that uh, the heroine is a f returning Peace Corps volunteer. And so I was, I was a little interested in that. And I, to be honest, I thought when I picked it up that it was going to be like kind of fun, bad. And I thought that probably like as a returned Peace Corps volunteer myself that I was going to be able to kind of like nitpick the way they talked about Peace Corps. And I thought, I don't know, I, I thought it would be bad, but in a way that I could be kind of like smugly have fun with it. But actually it was just bad and they barely talk about Peace Corps at all. And, uh, and it sucked and it was gross and, and I didn't like it. Um, the, Basic premise, this girl, Allie, is she's leaving the Peace Corps in Cameroon and on her her flight home is about to get hijacked by Boko Haram, like the the terrorist group, which is like way too real to put in your romance novel, I feel like. And then they're so casually disposed of, by the way. Um, and then Kingston McNally, who's the secret agent for a group called Endgame, which is, or Endgames. 
whatever they um it's like the cia but like even more secret and like more elite or whatever he stops in and saves her and then they have to like work together to figure stuff out but it's just like gross and offensive and not like in a cool fun way it's one of the very few things that i've read not specifically for the podcast that i give one good one star to and goodreads it just was shitty in like every way so that's Flash of Fury by Leah Griffith. Not recommended. Bye. Well, I definitely won't read that. <laughs> um, so my worst book that I read this year was called Abandon, and it was by Blake Crouch. And this was one, I think it was like on Kindle Black Friday last year or, or uh, Audible Black Friday last year or two years ago or something. And it was like three bucks and it was listed under the horror heading. So I bought it and I listened to it and it just, it was just like this weird generic thriller with no ghosts that jumped back and forth between time periods, got like vaguely racist at points, and had such an absurd ending that I could not believe it. Um, the general conceit is that, and I can't remember any of the characters' names because that's how bad life is. There's a, a young woman who is a freelance journalist and her uh, professor father invites her to do a story on this ghost town called Abandon that was abandoned in the woods in like Utah or Colorado or somewhere out there, uh, like up like a two day hike from the nearest town. And what he doesn't tell her is that he is also, there's a rumor that like, cause the whole town disappeared in one day. Like they had their, their, uh, table set for Christmas Eve and then when somebody came to drop off supplies in January like the entire town was gone and everything seemed like it was like frozen as it had been like mid-meal for these people on Christmas Day and so you know she's supposed she's going up with these like paranormal people paranormal photographers and they're gonna do this story about like this abandoned town uh, but she finds out that also there's a fortune in gold bars that is lost somewhere on the mountaintop and her father like really wants to find it to pay off debts or something. I don't know. And so then it turns into like, there are bad guys chasing them and they're like murdering people. And like her father was maybe in on it, but not really. And they're being chased around this like old abandoned town. And it's interspersed with cuts of what actually happened at abandoned that day. And it just gets more and more absurd and ridiculous. And, like, the author didn't really know what he was doing and just kept adding more and more uh, to it to to keep the plot going when it really didn't need to have to happen. The end, which was one really I would have, like, stopped if there was not only, like, 30 minutes left in the book the woman gets off the mountain and like gets into the nearest town and she's like beaten up and bloody and frostbitten and like clearly hysterical. And she goes into this hotel and the woman behind the desk is like, you can't use the phone cause you're not a guest here. And I'm not going to call the police because whatever, 
like, even though you're telling me that something bad happened to you and you look like the, you know, you've been beaten to hell and back and then found out, fell down the side of the mountain. I just am not going to call the cops. I'm just going to yell at you that you can't use the phone because you're not a guest here. And then, like, the bad guy chased her through the streets of the town and no one noticed her. It was so stupid. I didn't like it. Don't read it. And there were no ghosts in it. Ugh, the worst. Even, even a, you know what? And, uh, what? I already forgot what it was called. Flash of, I was going to call it Fist of Fury. Flash of Fury didn't have any ghosts in it either. <sighs> Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> All right. Well, should we cleanse our palates and talk about our favorite comics and graphic novels of the year? Let's do it. Great. My fifth favorite graphic novel of the year is called All's Fair, with an E at the end, in middle school by Victoria Jameson, who um, wrote Roller Girl, which I think previously made it onto at least one of our lists. Um, this is a great kind of middle grade um you know, just realistic contemporary story about um, an 11-year-old girl named Imogene who's grown up being homeschooled and her parents work at the Renaissance Fair. And so she's um, grown up among, like, you know, kind of weirdos. and But she really has sort of a, a found family in with the Renaissance people and she runs around and she she's very known there and she has her own, her own little kind of society. But then she um, starts going to public school for middle school. And as you can imagine, um, it's it's an adjustment period for her. And it that's the that's the main plot of it. And you get to see a lot of kind of fun antics around the Renaissance Fair. And then it also has some very subtle um, like race and class bits going on as well, where she, once she goes to public school, she realizes that her family's pretty poor, which she hadn't really realized within the context of the Renaissance Fair because they're all just doing Renaissance Fair stuff. But then, you know, she realizes all the other kids are wearing like name brand shoes and not like the boots that were especially made for her at the Renaissance Fair, um, as well as um, just sort of. It, you know, it's not a big part of it, but her father is Latino and he always gets cast as the villain in the Renaissance Fair's kind of uh, play thing. Um, and so it's not a part of it, but it's just some, uh, not a huge part of it. I mean, but it's just something that she observes and it's part of her life. And it's something I think that for a lot of younger readers will g give them pause and make them think or make them feel kind of seen. Um, but it's just a, a sweet story about her coming into her own. And um, the art is also by Victoria Jameson. It's really cute. And when she's at the Renaissance Fair, a lot of it is drawn in kind of like, you know, old timey tapestry uh, uh, style. Uh, it's just a really fun read. So it's all is fair in middle school. It does sound like a fun read. Yeah. <laughs> So my number five comic that I read this year uh, was Nutmeg, uh, which is written by James F. Wright with art, uh, including colors by Jackie Crofts. And this is, like, I've seen it described as, like, Breaking Bad but with Girl Scouts, and that is, like, kind of what it is. There is a Girl Scout-esque 
group that does like bake sales and they run have the run on all of the bake sales and uh these two like outcast girls who are not a member of the girl scout troop which is uh mostly like popular mean girls they decide to start up their own baking business and like are winning people over and uh doing things like not totally above the board and it's delightful uh it's very funny it's very sweet and weird the the color palette's really good and the art is adorable and like i'm i'm so bad at describing art but it's like cute and sneaky simultaneously if that's a way to describe a thing sure but yeah i definitely like it and would recommend it i've only read the first volume of the series so far i bought it at a on a whim at heroes con this year i like walked by their table and i can't even remember what they said but they uh they sold me on the book by giving me like an elevator pitch on it and i bought it and like went back to the hotel room and read it and immediately was like this is amazing so yeah yeah, I had seen um, something on Twitter calling it, like, Breaking Bad, both Girl Scouts. And I was like, that's the exact thing that I want. And so I haven't read it yet, but I'm very excited to read it. So, hooray. Um, all right. My fourth favorite graphic novel comic that I read this year was uh, Mockingbird, written by Chelsea Kane, um, with art by Kate Nemezik and Ibrahim Mustafa. Um, this you might have heard about because uh, it offended a lot of men's rights activists and other babies on the internet. And so when I heard that they didn't like it, I was like, hell yeah, let me read Mockingbird. But it already got canceled by then because fucking comics. But uh, you can still read what's out there. It's really funny. It's really um, a smart story. Uh, Mockingbird, a.k.a. Bobby Morse, is not a character that... I knew that much about or like was particularly drawn to um, until she started being again until she started being protested by people who I don't like then I was like oh yeah this seems about right um so if I think if you don't know anything about the character you can pick this up and jump right in and you'll be fine uh it's just kind of some science antics and some spy antics and she's a very um she's a very funny character and has well um the thing i think that made people mad was in particular was a particular cover of an issue where she's seen wearing a t-shirt that says ask me about my feminist agenda and it's it's absolutely a comic with a feminist agenda and hell yes to that Excellent. I've read Mockingbird. I've read one trade. I don't know if there's more than one. There's two. Yes. Well, I would agree that the one that I read was good and that you should read it if you haven't. But my fourth favorite uh, comic that I read this year was uh, Spill Zone, which was written by Scott Westerfeld with art by Alex Pol. Land. Sorry, Alex. Hmm. And uh, Colors by Hilary Sycamore. And the uh, sort of premise of this book is that something happened in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. Some weird event happened that left everyone in the town in this sort of like weird suspended animation. Strange things are happening. It's kind of like 
like the the impression you get is that it's like a, a Chernobyl type incident where something bad happened and like now there's like an area that you can't go into because it's been affected. But instead of being like nuclear, it's it's weird. Just like everything is like weird and messed up. And there are strange creatures there, and there's, like, a perimeter around it that you're not supposed to cross. But our protagonist, Addison, has been sneaking in on her motorcycle at night to take photos, which she then sells to wealthy collectors, in order to take care of herself and her young sister. Mysteriously, a bus full of children was able to escape the spill zone, and... None of the children who escaped have spoken since. They've all gone mute. And her sister is one of them. So this is how she uh, supports them is by taking these beautiful photographs that are like creepy and illegal. And she gets offered by a buyer who comes at her directly instead of through like the middleman they normally use millions of dollars if she will go in and fetch something from within the spill zone. And she knows that that kind of money would set them up for life and she wouldn't have to do all these dangerous things anymore. So she accepts the job. And that is sort of where the first volume ends. But it's really weird and creepy and good. And the colors in this book are amazing. They are fantastic because the the spill zone is done in a very particular color palette. And it, it just looks like ethereal and weird and unsettling. And it is so good. I mean, the art is good, too, and the story is good, but, like, the fucking colors in this book are incredible. And I highly recommend it. I think only one volume's out so far, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's good, and you should pick it up. I did pick it up, Kate, and I also really liked it, but I didn't put it on my list, because you did. But I'll I'll co-sign that recommendation. It's a really cool story, uh, and I'm excited for the next volume. But my third favorite comic this year was uh, Black Panther World of Wakanda, written by Roxane Gay with art by Alitha Martinez. So I was, I'm excited for the Black Panther movie. I think it looks great. I don't know a ton about the Black Panther character. And I had read some of Ta-Nehisi Coates' Black Panther comics. And like, you know, I, I've loved Ta-Nehisi Coates' writing and I'm excited for I was excited that Marvel hired him for this character, but then I found his Black Panther comics to be really hard to understand and, like, hard to follow, which, you know, partly, like I said, I'm not very familiar with the character, so I was just kind of like, okay, this is not really for me. But I also love Roxanne Gay, because who doesn't? And so when she started writing this Black Panther spinoff comic, I decided to pick it up, even though I previously had been a little out of my depth. And I I just loved World of Wakanda so much. It made me, like, go back and try to read the Black Panther comics again, although I still find them confusing. I'm sorry. You can read and appreciate World of Wakanda without reading the Black Panther comics. Um, it's, it's really kind of a prequel to what's currently happening or, like, what at the time was happening with Ta-Nehisi Coates' Black Panther comics. And it's specifically focuses on Io and Aneka, who are now known as the Midnight Angels, which are two of the Dora Milaje, the, like, the, the all-lady bodyguards that Black Panther has. 
and they are um, lovers and it's about them coming together and then also about about the the rebellion in Wakanda and it's just like it's such a beautiful story between the two of them and and that gets you through it even if you don't necessarily understand all of the like Wakandan trappings so I definitely recommend Black Panther World of Wakanda by Roxane Gay with art by Aletha Martinez um, and the, the trade volume also includes like some bonus comics from Ta-Nehisi Coates also so you, you can get a little taste of that I guess my third favorite comic that I read this year was Compass South, which was written by Hope Larson and has art by Rebecca Mock. It's the first in a series, and I have not read the second one yet, but I see Rebecca Mock a lot at uh, a couple of the cons that I go to, and I really like her art, and I own a bunch of standalone prints that she's done. And I actually think I've talked about her on this show before, but I picked this up after seeing it like at her table a bunch of times and I really liked it. It's sort of a middle grade story about these two twins, Alexander and Cleopatra, who uh, have been raised by a man who's not exactly their father, although they don't know it. Uh, He was a former boyfriend of their mother who took them in after she died and they were left with an inheritance, which was a pocket knife and a pocket watch. And each one of them has one of those two. So this is like oldish in times, sort of old in times, I guess. I don't know exactly what year it is. I just really think of anything like prior to 1900 as the same sort of vague olden times. Yeah, totally. And uh, their father's been missing for a while. They're now teenagers and he went off to find work and they haven't heard from him in almost a year and they get picked up by the cops after Alexander was doing a a crime for like the local Dickensian like teenage crime boss of the orphans and the cops make them a deal that if they tell them where the like teenage crime gang is hiding out they will put them on a boat to somewhere else and they will be safe from this boss who already told him he would kill already told them he would kill them if they snitched on him and alexander finds an advertisement in the paper of a gentleman who is looking for uh his orphaned or his twin sons who had been in Boston and he had like lost them for some reason. I don't remember exactly why. And they're like supposed to be the same age or like 12 years old and they're redheaded boys and uh, the twins are redheaded and they're 12. So they decide that they will go to meet this guy in San Francisco and pretend to be his sons who he hasn't seen in several years and probably won't recognize according to their, you know, 12 year old logic. So Cleopatra cuts her hair and starts wearing boys' clothes, and they head down to New Orleans. And while they're there to catch a boat that'll go through the Panama Canal and go up to uh, San Francisco, they bump into another set of redheaded twins who have had the same idea as them and end up getting into all sorts of trouble, and the twins get split up, so... Cleopatra is with one of the other boys and Alexander is with one of the other boys and they're on separate journeys 
to get to San Francisco so that they could meet up with each other. And there are like pirates involved and like this weird destiny that they have that they find out that the pocket watch is not a pocket watch, but it is a cipher that leads to a map to somewhere where there's probably treasure. And it was just, it was really cool. It was fun. It was a great adventure story. The art is great. Rebecca Mock draws incredibly detailed expressions on all of the different kids. You could always tell like exactly what they were feeling uh, in any given panel. And despite the fact that it involved two sets of twins, you could always tell the twins apart, which is not easy, I would imagine, especially for someone like me who has like no visual memory. But I really would recommend it. I'm planning on reading the second one once my hold comes in at the library. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Nice. That sounds good. But my second favorite graphic novel comic of the year was uh, The Jughead by Chip Zdarsky and art by Erica Henderson. And later on in Jughead, it's written by Ryan North. And this is something, like, for the last few years at least, they've been, they, they over at Archie Comics have been, like, trying to reboot Archie Comics. And... I was really skeptical for the longest time. I was just like, who wants this? No one wants this. What are you doing? And it just, they just kept doing it. They kept doing more Archie comics. And then um, Riverdale came out, as you probably know. And I started watching it and I am deeply invested in Riverdale now. And so I did start reading some of the like rebooted Archie comics and uh, they're, they're a mixed bag, I would say, but I really like the Jughead book. Uh, it's so funny. It's so weird. And uh, it was uh, noteworthy, I guess, that they made Jughead a canonically asexual character, which there are so few of in, in comics and in any kind of fiction, really. So that was cool to see. Not something that they're doing on Riverdale, the show, but whatever, Riverdale. Uh, but Jughead, the book, it's so funny. It's so weird. And it's it's really refreshing in that as is the standard of Archie Comics, like each issue really is kind of a standalone thing because that's, you know, Archie Comics, you just pick one up, whatever. So when you're getting tired of all these like comics crossover events and like whatever, whatever, uh, it's it's just sort of simple, fun, deeply strange, funny school stories about Jughead. And I, I do recommend it strongly. And I haven't read Jughead yet. I want to, but I will pop in and say that I think a couple years ago, uh, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina was on my list. And that is another one of these, like, we're going to reboot Archie comics and make them relevant. And it's super good. It's weird and creepy and it's a horror comic, but I love that. It just is on a very strange, delayed uh, release schedule. There's lots of time between issues. So it's been a little slow going, but I would still recommend it. Mm. See, I read that. I'm going to, I didn't like it because it's like really dark and like, I mean, it's it's a real horror comic and not, like, the fun, whimsical Sabrina of TGIF, and that's what I want. So if you want <laughs> that, it's it's not that. But if you do want a horror comic, it is that. <laughs> yes, it is definitely a horror comic. But it is not my number two. Um, my number two is Moonstruck, which is written by Grace Ellis uh, with art by Shea Beagle and layouts or editorial work or something by Lauren McCubbin. Uh, I'm not entirely clear. I know she does editorial work for it. I think she might also do layouts because that's kind of her deal is design. 
but it's a really cute book. Uh, there are only four issues of it so far, and the first trade I think is set to come out in like the spring of this year or next year, 2018, which will be this year by the time you're listening to this. Dear God, time is a flat circle. <laughs> But it is about a world where people are just magical, like magical creatures just exist and it's just a part of society. And, you know, maybe your best friend is a werewolf or a vampire or a Medusa or a ghost or whatever. And it focuses on uh, Julie, who is a werewolf who works at a coffee shop with her best friend Chet, who is a centaur. And uh, Julie is dating, she has a new girlfriend named Selena, and for one of their first dates, she decides that they should go to, like, this weird magic show she finds a flyer for. And she and Selena and Chet go, and during the magic show, Chet is chosen to be the, like, magician's assistant for a trick. So they go up there, and... When the trick is done, Chet is no longer a centaur. They do not have a, like, horse bottom part of their body anymore, but they have, like, regular human legs. And then it becomes, like, kind of a mystery of how are we going to, like, what happened? How can we turn our friend back? What is going on here? And it's, like, it's weird and it's super cute. Uh, You know, it's got, like, these great friendships uh, it's obviously very queer friendly and all these cool magical creatures. It's, it's a, it's a really cute story so far. Uh, I'm really into it and it's a lot of fun and you should definitely, uh, check it out. The back matter is really good too. Uh, they've been interviewing, they've got like three sections of the back matter. They do interviews with, uh, other comics professionals and, they do a an advice column from different characters within the universe, and they do like the regular uh, letters and fan mail and fan art and stuff. Uh, but yeah, you should read it. It's great. I think I will. That sounds great. Okay, before I reveal my favorite comic of the year, I do want to mention something that I don't think we explicitly said at the beginning of this episode because it wasn't as relevant for the adult books. But uh, generally unless something is really outstanding or we just feel like it, um, we try not to repeat things if we've already mentioned a series in previous years. So I'm still reading like Squirrel Girl and Ms. Marvel and all new Wolverine and some other stuff. And I still really love a lot of ongoing books that I've previously mentioned. Um, so you can go back and look at previous years if you want to see some comics that I liked then and I still like now. And I know that is also true of Kate, that there's ongoing comics that we're not mentioning this year, not because we don't like them anymore, but just to make some room to talk about different stuff. Yeah, because we would just talk about Squirrel Girl all the time if we didn't do that. And, you know, you gotta you gotta make room for other folks. But Squirrel Girl is so good, though. It is so good. <laughs> but you know what else is good is Unstoppable Wasp by Jeremy Whitley, um, with art by Elsa Charitier, I guess I'll say. I went on a real journey before I even read this book, which was when I heard it was coming out, I was like, oh my god, Jeremy Whitley's writing a Wasp book? That's great, because Jeremy Whitley writes um, Princeless and The Pirate Princess, and I've really liked those books, and so I was excited, and then I 
I saw that it wasn't about Janet Van Dyne. It was about Nadia Pym as the Wasp. And I was like, who is Nadia Pym? Like, bring me Janet. I love Janet. And I was a little mad, but I I was going to give it a chance, but I hadn't gotten around to reading it. And then I heard that it was canceled before I even started reading it. And I was like, God damn it. Why does this always happen? And then I finally read it and it was it's really good, as you can tell, because it's my favorite of the year. It's really good. And I'm extra mad that it was canceled because we we just can't have nice things, guys. Um, and I fully realize I'm part of the problem because I didn't read it till it was canceled. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. But so Nadia Pym is a teenage daughter of Hank Pym, who uh, uh, I don't even know. What, I think he's dead in the comics now. He whatever. So she had been um, uh, trapped in the Red Room, which is the same sort of sinister Russian whatever that made the Black Widow and has appeared sort of in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's just sort of a shadowy, like, bad guy science area. And so she grew up there and she's the super smart teenage girl. And now she is escaped from there and she's sort of making her way over into, like, the Marvel world. And she's... Just like, you know, she's been raised in this bubble, so she doesn't get a lot of pop culture references, which is sort of an ongoing humorous part of it, especially since this does adorably cross over a little bit with, like, um, Ms. Marvel and Mockingbird and some other, oh, and um, Moon Girl. And so she's meeting up with these other Marvel characters who do tend to make more pop culture references. So there's a lot of that. And she's just this just this ray of sunshine, this very sweet, optimistic teen superhero who loves science, and I love her. And uh, I'm going to read to you just a little bit of her interaction with uh, Mockingbird, who I I mentioned previously because I also liked her comic this year. And we've talked about this before. It's just always weird and hard to do comics read aloud, so I'm going to do my best. This is only Bobby and Nadia talking. So Bobby says, wait, you're Hank's kid? With who? My mother was Maria Pym. Maria? Oh my God. I only met Maria a few times, but I've known your dad since before superhero stuff even. We worked on a government project together. You worked on one of my father's projects? I've researched all of them. I don't remember a Bobby. Bobby is short for Barbara. Barbara Morse. Biologist Barbara Morse? Like, Project Gladiator Barbara Morse? Like, almost successfully reproduced the Super Soldier Serum Barbara Morse? Those are not usually the things people remember about me. Like, Lady Adventurer Scientist in the Savage Land and hanging out with Man-Thing in the Everglades Barbara Morse? That is weird that you know all of that. You are my hero. I read your research on the super soldier serum and you talked about all the traveling and the savage land. And I thought, I thought this is who I want to be when I grow up. A woman who's a super scientist, but doesn't stay locked in a lab all day. She has adventures. You inspire me. And now Bobby is crying and she says, okay, that that's a lot right there. And I just, you know, I've worked for shield for a long time and I, and I don't know that anybody has ever said that I inspire them. And and it's totally cool for a superhero to just cry in public. People don't remember that I'm a scientist. They just remember that I used to be married to Hawkeye and I hit things with sticks. So that means a lot. Come here, kid. It's been a rough couple of months for me. Can I have another one of those hugs? Heck yes. And then they hug. It's the cutest comic. I love it. <laughs> 
I gotta read that one. Yeah, if you like uh, lady superheroes, uh, which you should if you're listening to this podcast, uh, definitely check out Unstoppable Was by Jeremy Whitley and Elsa Charitier, and then mourn its too soon passing. Yeah, I definitely will. So uh, Renata also obviously just said this, that uh, we're only really covering books that we're reading for the first time this year. But I wanted to give a particular shout out to what I believe was one of my best of the year, maybe last year or the year before, uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which is ending tragically, which, you know, I think it lasted like 25 issues, which is pretty good for some of these series that they just kind of don't promote and shove on the back burner. But it's such a great book and I'm sad to see it go. And um, also this year, Bitch Planet, um, which I was like back and forth on whether or not I should recommend this because it is slightly different. Um, But they just did a run of anthology stories with different, a mix of up and coming artists and writers and established artists and writers telling tiny stories within the Bitch Planet universe. And they've all been pretty phenomenal. Uh, And that's collected in trade, I believe, early in 2018. But my number one comic that I read this year is actually uh, Goldie Vance, which is written by Hope Larson with art by Brittany Williams, colors by Sarah Stern, and uh, letters by Jim Campbell. And this is this is a slightly older book. It's been around for a couple of years so far, I think. And I only just picked it up for the first time this year, obviously, but it's adorable. It is the story of 16-year-old Goldie Vance, who works at a resort hotel in Florida, where her father is the manager and she is a valet currently, but she really wants to be the in-house detective. So she works with uh, the current in-house detective kind of sort of against his will sometimes to help solve mysteries around the hotel. And uh, it's got a great diverse cast and it's really cute. It's got queer themes it's got amazing art amazing like period trappings and illustrations and it's just it's awesome and i love it and it just got optioned recently for a film i believe i want to say like rashida jones yes is directing it yes i had a really and someone else that i was excited about was attached to it as well Yeah, but so definitely pick it up. There's a couple volumes. I'm going to read a little bit from the first one. And the the credits that I gave are from the first volume. Uh, I believe that there's a different uh, different artist in maybe the third volume. But yeah, so here's a little bit of Goldie trying to help Walter, the in-house detective, find a guest's missing necklace. Walter says, It won't need your assistance to ring the pawn shop, so if you don't mind... Oh, come on, Walter. Tighten your lip game. You know this isn't just about the necklace. If there's a thief on staff, we've got to find him before he strikes again. And Walter sighs. And Goldie says, so I think we should start with. And then they are in the housekeeper's headquarter place. And one of the housekeepers says, 914? Never stepped foot in there. We rolled by this morning, but the guests put out the DND. And Walter says, the what? Do not disturb. Goldie adds. And the other housekeeper says, but we clean the next room over. And I about died of fright when some yo-yo looked in the window at me. And Walter says, looked in on the ninth floor? 
and Goldie says, come on, Walt. Yo-yo means window washer and points outside to where the window washers are uh, hanging down the side of the building. And she asks the window washer the same question, presumably, because he replies, don't remember no necklace, but that girl, yow, what's her name? And Goldie says, Jenny, you scared her. Tell her I'm sorry. She like French food? I'll buy her dinner at Poisson d'Arville or some French thing. Who knows? And then back inside in the hallway, Walter says, pretty boy didn't do it. Growing up with that face, he never learned to lie or steal. He gets everything he wants just for asking. Some of us have to make an effort. And Goldie says, well, should we talk to the kitchen? Maybe he got swiped by room service. And Walter says, shouldn't you get to work? And Goldie says, ah, flash, you're right. Spoil sport. And then she changes into her valet outfit and is out at the valet stand. But it's super cute. There's actually a se- My favorite sequence in the book is wordless. So I couldn't... My two favorite sequences in the book actually were wordless. So I could not quote those at you for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty great. And you should check it out. Yeah. And uh, we'll have panels of those scanned up on our website if you want to take a look at the art, which is an important half of, of a comic. Uh, that is hard to do on a podcast. All right. So my least favorite comic of the year was the Thor Ragnarok prelude, which Marvel puts out all these like little preludes for their uh, for their movies. And I I think I read maybe the Civil War one. And then I was like, oh, this isn't great. And so I haven't read any of them since then. But I just, I loved Thor Ragnarok so much that I was like, let me just give it a try and let me check out another one of these things. And, oh, and I forgot to say, this has, it's kind of an anthology, so it has a ton of writers, a ton of artists, but it's um, written in various parts by Will Corona Pilgrim, Walter Simonson, that's like an old classic comic included, um, and Greg Pak, who I love in general. And then art is um, also by Walter Simonson and Carlo Pagulayan and Marshall Rogers. And it's just like a mishmash of like, it has a novelization of the Hulk movie, which like are a comics summary recap of the Hulk movie, which like if you are going to see Thor Ragnarok and you don't even know what the Hulk is, like I just, I don't know what you're doing here. And then it has a comics summary of of Thor the Dark World which I thought was a little more helpful because I don't really remember what happened in Thor the Dark World but it's in here and then it has a few kind of classic old Thor comics tacked in the end and it's just like the old comics are kind of interesting but these like summary like you made these movies and the movies are better than these recap comics like who wants this and so I think if if the idea here is like, oh, I want to see Thor Ragnarok, but I haven't seen any of these movies. I'll just read this prelude comic. Like, it's not enough. You're It's it's stupid. And then if you are an avid Marvel fan and you've already seen these movies, then these comics are just, like, pointless. It's a pointless little volume. But Thor Ragnarok, the movie, is so good, and I love it so much. And that's, that's one of my favorite books of the year is Thor Ragnarok, the movie. Well, I guess that's only fair, since one of my favorite books of the year was <laughs> Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. <laughs> All right. So my worst comic of the year was kind of like least best. Like, it wasn't great, but it also wasn't terrible. Like, I'm not mad that I read it. But again, like, I'm mostly reading the same stuff that I'm pulling all the time. I'm not reading a ton of standalone things, except for, like, full graphic novels, which, like I said, 
I don't read. Keep reading if I don't like. So my least favorite comic of the year is X-Men Sword Volume 1, No Time to Breathe, which is written by Kieran Gillen, pencils by Steven, Steven Sanders, inks by Craig Young, uh, Craig Young, sorry, colors by Matt Wilson, and letters by Dave Lampier. And this was just, it was fine. If you are unfamiliar with S.W.O.R.D., I can't remember what it stands for off the top of my head, but it's basically like the um, the alien spy organization. Uh, you know, they keep track of alien operatives and deal with like, they're kind of like S.H.I.E.L.D. for space, I guess, is a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it follows Abigail Brand, who used to be the head of S.W.O.R.D., and then this takes place after Secret Wars. So now... Henry Geigrich, who you might remember from X-Men comics, is like her co-leader of the organization, and she's pissed about it. And so this particular volume is basically like her being pissed and also dealing with the fact that her boyfriend, who is Beast, if you are unfamiliar with that, uh, is now like up there on the base with her all the time, and also kind of starting to figure out that, like, Gyrick is surprised, not on the up and up, and, like, what his plan is and why he's up there. And it was good. It was, like, a good regular, you know, superhero comic. Kieran Gillen's a good writer. Uh, the art was really good, but just not not anything special, I guess. I wouldn't not recommend it if you're into any of those things or any of those characters, but I kind of feel like if you are into them, you probably read it when it came out, which was, like, probably five years ago now. Fair enough. All right. So we did it. We did 2017. Oh, I do want to I want to throw out another similar to my inexplicable logic of my life recommendation. Um, I'm currently in the middle of reading My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emile Ferris. And it's really good. And it's it's just it's very it's a lot. It is long and it is very intricate. So it's taking me some time to get through it. Uh, but it is fantastic so far. And uh, I recommend, based on where I am now, that you look for that. Okay. Well, now we've done it. Now we've done yes. 2017. Um, so you can check out our website, worstbestsellers.com, for, you know, the full list of all of these and um, co- panels from the comics that we read out loud. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter, where we're Worst Bestseller with no S, because the S is for sword, and they need it. Uh, you can like us on Facebook, or facebook.com slash worstbestsellers with the S, because Facebook gives us more characters. Uh, we also have a Goodreads group that has a long URL that you can access via worstbestsellers.com if you care to. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. If you subscribe to us, please take a moment to rate and review us. If you rate and review us, it pops us up a little bit in the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. If you don't rate and review us, then I don't know, maybe we'll make you read some of the books that we didn't like that much. And then you'll also be vaguely disappointed with the state of literature or something normally i come up with a better joke there my brain's not really on we've been recording for four hours um uh you can also subscribe to us on patreon at patreon.com slash worst bestsellers with an s if you are unfamiliar with patreon it is where you can pledge a small recurring monthly donation that will uh, get you access to perks and give us some extra cash to do things like buy new equipment and pay our editor 
And we really, we really appreciate all of you who support us um, by yes. Patreon or even, you know, if you don't have cash to spare, but you just like retweet us or send us nice messages on Facebook. All of that is just is so nice and so meaningful to us. So yes. uh, it's been a long year and it really has helped us just knowing that there's people out here listening and enjoying what we do. And we love you guys. We do. And by the time you're listening to this, we'll be a little bit into 2018 already. But, you know, let's let's stick together and keep helping each other out and hopefully make 2018 a little bit better than the past couple years have been. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Use the yep. secret. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, also, if you want to follow me personally on Twitter, I'm at Renata Snacks. And I'm at 14 Across. And together we fight crime. Sort of. <laughs> if crime is bad books. Yeah. Yes. Uh, speaking of <laughs> bad books. crimes against literature. Yes. We fight them. Uh, speaking of which, we'll be back in two weeks with, uh, with the classic terrible romantic advice book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus by John Gray comma phd which i don't even believe yeah and if you missed us doing really bad books by listening to two episodes of good books you will get your money back in i don't know that was not really what that was not a good word way to phrase it's bad it's really bad (laughs) we're coming in strong coming in strong starting the new year with a real bad book so look forward to that um so we'll we'll see you then well you'll hear us then you won't yes. see us. It's not a visual medium. No. Nope. We're so good at podcasts. We're so good at understanding fully what a podcast is, how it works. We just get it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so bye. Bye. Bye.